Hello, everybody, and welcome back to We've Got Next Pod. Um, this week, we're going to do something a little different. We're going to cover two main things. It's gonna, each of them are going to be a little bit shorter than the main topic usually is. And then we're going to have a great interview with Henry Brewster, who is a lawyer who works on a lot of voter suppression cases. Um, so I know that we've had a lot about voter suppression. And sorry about that, I guess, if you don't like that. But I think he's going to provide a really unique and interesting perspective about everything. Okay, so our two main topics are what the fuck is happening in Portland and AOC's speech on the House floor about sexism. So first, Portland. So Portland is a city in Oregon, of course, where the Trailblazers play. Um, I'm very good with them in 2K. Um, so it started out like everywhere else in the country, typical Black Lives Matter protests. The one unique thing I would say is that Portland is like one of the whitest cities in the U.S., so it's very promising that like one of the whitest cities in the U.S. is having so many Black Lives Matter protests. It says great things about the advancement of the movement. And then around July 4th, Trump sent in federal troops from the Department of Homeland Security and the U.S. Marshal Service. Um, and since those federal troops went in, things have escalated a lot. And so the important thing to know about this is that Federal troops don't just go into localities. You have your local police department, which we talked about in the first episode. You have the local police departments, and that's what happened. And there are state troopers. But, like, part of the whole thing about the U.S. and, like, states' rights is that the states police themselves, and the federal government has a military, but the military doesn't police the states. So this is huge and terrible that Trump set in federal troops. And it makes it's made even worse by the fact that Oregon and Portland did not want the troops there. The federal, the um, mayor of Portland was actually in a crowd where the federal troops just tear gassed the crowd, and the mayor, literally the mayor of Portland, which is a decent-sized city, was tear gassed. So what you should know about the protests is that they're basically all peaceful, and then recently there's like a tiny bit of violence at night, but not even that much, and that's only recently after the federal government provoked them. And there's a lot of this, like, rhetoric out there that, like, Portland is, like, a city under siege, which is just not true. And if you want to see the example of what's not true, you can go to the usual place where you find things that aren't true, Trump's Twitter account, where he says, The fake news media is trying to portray the Portland and Seattle protesters as wonderful, sweet, and innocent, just out for a little stroll. Actually, they're sick and deranged anarchists and agitators who our great men and women of law enforcement easily control, but who would destroy our American cities and worse is sleepy Joe Biden, the puppet of the left, everyone, blah, 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 blah. So a lot of words that were capitalized in there that should not be capitalized. But the more important thing is that the sentiment is kind of disgusting and hateful and just blatantly not true. So it's peaceful protests. The mayor was tear gassed. Trump saying all this stuff. He's trying to like, drum up like a campaign slogan or a campaign rally out of something happening in a city like peaceful protests i guess and these troops what they're doing there they're being sent in with tear gas rubber bullets and batons and they're just beating the shit out of people and rubber bullets even though they're rubble hurt a lot multiple people in portland have gotten permanent damage after being shot by rubber bullets especially when they've gotten shot in the head someone has like permanent brain damage after being shot in the head by a rubber bullet fired by someone who works from the Department of Homeland Security. 
like literally there was like a navy vet who was just like and you just saw like the department of homeland security just beating the shit out of him for protesting and he's like a navy vet like not an anarchist or agitator a navy vet like the scariest thing i think is like there have been many videos of like cars like big vans coming up and it's like federal agents who are literally not identifying themselves as federal agents they could be random people and they're just like kidnapping random people putting like hoods over their heads and carrying them into the car which is like just kidnapping and like brutal and if this like reminds you of something from like one of those like crazy movies about like a police state it should because that's exactly what it is i think that like these events are so scary but we don't really understand the full scope of them because this this country is actually like newer than we realize and we like feel so secure in everything but trump and specifically this event is breaking so much of what is the norm like right after the constitutional convention when ben franklin when benjamin franklin was asked um what what form of government the u.s was going to have and he said a republic if we can keep it that should tell you that like the founders knew that this was going to be an experiment and a challenge and that it wasn't going to be a safe system. It's very fragile. And right now, as is exemplified by the situation in Portland, we're moving far closer to authoritarianism than people are really comfortable recognizing. Because like these acts, like sending in federal agents undercover to kidnap people and give people brain damage for exercising their First Amendment right to peacefully protest goes against literally everything that this country stands for and would have been, like, unheard of four years ago. But now that Trump's president, it's, like, bad, but nobody's that surprised. Um, okay, so now I want to talk about the AOC speech. So, basically, Representative Ted Yoho, 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 I think it's, like, the the milk, the chocolate milk drink, that it's, like, Yoho, Yoho, um, from who's a Republican from Texas called AOC Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, who is a Democrat from the Bronx and Queens, also in the House of Representatives. She's a Democratic Socialist and is very famous on Twitter and Trump's favorite villain. Um, so he went up to her and because she was on the front steps of the Capitol and she was talking about how crime is linked to poverty, especially in New York, as like the crime rates are going up right now. And she was saying it's linked to poverty, which was caused by the coronavirus which is true, although maybe it's not a fact, maybe it's like an opinion. And then he goes up to her and just calls her a bitch in front of the media, clearly doing it for political reasons, but like that's just like so sexist and disgusting. And then when asked to apologize, he like did not apologize at all. And this like should seem horrible, but it's also like not super out of the ordinary. Like a few years ago, a super similar situation happened. Um, with another congresswoman who was talking about something and then like another co- and then a congressman who was a Republican also just said something like super patronizing called her like a young woman even though she was like 40 years old or something and said like she had no idea what she was talking about like super patronizing super sexist and recently I saw a um a video from like Trump and Hillary's debate in 2016 and he was just like using like all like the dog whistle sexist words that people use when they're trying to like portray women as like bad and he she he was like oh she's so angry she's so she was so mad like all those things that like draw on like the negative stereotypes of women that are prevalent anyway it's a little bit sidetracked but basically so he's yo who said this awful thing 
AOC was obviously she like clapped back on Twitter. She was like, uh, she was. I think she said like, "Well, bitches get shit done" or something like that, and it was kind of cool. But anyway, he didn't apologize, and he called her a bitch in front of many media outlets, which is like horrible. And so the next day, she gave a brilliant speech on the House floor about sexism and misogyny. So I'm gonna play a few clips from that speech. The first one is about why she's saying this and why she feels that this needs to be said. Representative Yoho decided to come to the floor of the House of Representatives and make excuses for his behavior. And that I could not let go. I could not allow my nieces, I could not allow the little girls that I go home to, I could not allow victims of verbal abuse and worse to see that, to see that excuse, and to see our Congress accept it as legitimate. I am two years younger than Mr. Yoho's youngest daughter. Okay, I thought that was awesome. Um, and the next one is about what a decent man is, and at this point, she's, like, spitting facts. Having a daughter does not make a man decent. Having a wife does not make a decent man. Treating people with dignity and respect makes a decent man. And when a decent man messes up, as we all are bound to do, he tries his best and does apologize, not to save face, not to win a vote. He apologizes genuinely to repair and acknowledge the harm done so that we can all move on. Okay, so first of all, this is not really the point, but like, regardless of what you think of her politics, like this is brilliant. She's literally not even reading anything. This wasn't written by a speechwriter. She has a few thoughts and she's just talking. And so few politicians can do this. And the way that she does it is so effective and so brilliant. And the ideas that she's getting at are even more important than that. And I think it's really easy to just focus on that. But I think that everyone, especially the boys and men who I'm talking to right now, need to take away from this speech that it's time for like, it's time for men to care as much about gender equality, inequality as women do. And it's time for men to make active efforts to help women and stand by women and not just like watch sexist things happen as AOC said when she was talking about what a decent man is like being a good man means treating women with respect to their face and also I would add because this is more prevalent I think um even though she wasn't really talking about it like respecting women when they're not in the room also so to all the boys and men out there that's something in the midst of this like awakening that we're having about race this is another thing like think about this this is so common and this one egregious act by a representative which like not even just a random person like a fucking congressperson said it so it's a it's a it's a great time to consider your own actions and your own being a bystander so now we have our interview with henry or hal brewster who is an associate at Perkins Coie, which is a law firm that deals with a lot of issues around voter suppression, and he's doing some great work. He has some really interesting cases that he's working on right now. He's also a U.S. Army veteran, 
He led over 400 specialized soldiers in a couple hundred missions during the Operation Iraqi Freedom. And he has a Bronze Star Medal for his service. And so anyway, done some great things, is still doing some great things as he works with voter suppression. So, Henry, thank you so much for joining us. Um, so can you just first start by telling us like what your job is and what it was before the pandemic, especially? So I'm an attorney at a law firm called Perkins Coie, um, and I do voting rights litigation on behalf of democratic organizations uh, like the DNC or the DSCC or the DCCC. Um, I only started at this job in February. So, you know, just a matter of a few weeks before the pandemic really started in earnest. Um, so I got a taste of what life was going to be like prior to the pandemic, but I, um, you know, everything was turned, uh, upside down sort of about six weeks into when I started. Um, I was, uh, I have been a litigator for, uh, five years and I worked at, um, a New York law firm called Paul Weiss and then a litigation boutique called Wilkinson Walsh, uh, prior to joining Perkins Coie. So, yeah, um, and you want me to talk a little bit about how things have changed? Yeah. Green Post? Yeah. So, you know, before the pandemic, if you think back to it, this was still going to be a historic election year. Uh, 2020 was going to see record turnout, record interest in the election because of the incumbent president and also because of the sort of exciting race the Democrats had, the Democrats had in the primary. Um, so there was always going to be a lot of attention and um, money and resources uh, devoted to making it as easy as vote uh, to vote as possible. And one of the things that, you know, it's not the only answer to the question, but one of the answers to the question is litigation in the courts, both state and federal around the country. Um, so going into 2020, there was a full docket of things that we were going to be litigating, things like long lines, things like the order in which candidates appear on the ballot, things like voter identification, things like domicile residence uh, for college uh, students in the state in which they attend college. So all these things were planned, uh, and we were fully on board to litigate all those things. Um, and then, you know, the pandemic hit, and uh, I work for a man named Mark Elias, who is uh, sort of the top Democratic lawyer in Washington, D.C., who's sort of a thought leader in this space. And he articulated what he calls the four pillars uh, very early on in March. Um, and I can go into what those are, but they are all designed to reform vote by mail in a way that it makes the most ballots cast by mail count as possible. Because I think it's really important to remember, you know, I, I see a lot of Democrats right now really interested in the polls that show uh, former Vice President Biden ahead. And that's great, right? But the only way that those polls come to fruition on Election Day and the weeks after is if everyone's vote counts. And that is not a foregone conclusion in this environment, especially when the president and some of his uh, top lieutenants are calling into question the validity of voting by mail. Yeah, so that's that's um, really interesting. Like. In what ways does like the type of voter suppression before the pandemic relate to the voter suppression that's happening during the pandemic? Sure. And I just want to clarify the point about using the term voter suppression. You know, there are there are um, tactics and laws and regulations 
that are deliberately you know, aimed at suppressing the vote. There are also laws, regulations, and policies that are seemingly innocuous that have been on the books in some cases decades that are being tested in a really new way because all of a sudden, in a matter of months, we're going to reform our election system from an almost entirely in-person voting system in the vast majority of states to a system that will be administered almost entirely by mail. Um, I'm litigating a case in Nevada right now that um, challenges two of its laws because uh, Nevada in a traditional election year sees 90%, that's 90% of its population vote in person. Now, in the June primary that was held just about two months ago, 98% of Nevadans voted by mail. That is a huge wind change in the way that people are voting. And the laws that were passed by the legislature are having enormous unintended consequences that keep people, you know, that disenfranchise voters. And it wasn't really the intent of the legislature to disenfranchise voters. They were just putting sort of guardrails and they thought perhaps this was the best way to uh, protect the vote. So the example that I give is we're litigating something called signature mismatch and ballot collection. So those are two of the four pillars that I was mentioning earlier. So do you want me to explain, would it be helpful if I sort of explained what those two were? Yes, yeah, for sure. Okay, so signature mismatch, when you vote a ballot, um, you oftentimes have to sign the, um, you, you vote the ballot, you seal it inside the envelope, and then you sign the outside, and then you mail it in. Uh, once it's received by the county or the state or whomever is going to be tallying the votes, um, somebody takes a look at the signature on your envelope, and someone takes a, a look at the signature that you registered to vote with and makes a decision about whether or not those two match. And, you know, the motivating principle behind that is that you want to dissuade voter fraud. But the reality is many people have different signatures at different times in their lives. It could be being, getting older. It could be getting arthritis. We have a plaintiff in my lawsuit who's a millennial who just happens to have different signatures she uses at different times. And because she used a different signature when she registered to vote than when she actually voted, she was disenfranchised. So that's the signature match claim that we're trying to we want essentially a fairer presumption in, in behalf of the voter because the current standard under Nevada law is pretty squishy and gives a lot of discretion to the county officials who are themselves not trained in the science of signature mismatch. And then the second claim we have is about ballot collection. Um, in the under current uh, Nevada law, if you cannot return your own ballot, only a member of your family can return the ballot. However, member of family is not defined in the statute, so there's a lot of ambiguity about who can and cannot lawfully return a ballot. And that really injures the, you know, our clients in this lawsuit and most of our lawsuits are Democratic entities, including the Nevada State Democratic Party. If this were allowed by law, they would run uh, a system through which they would get people to vote. You know, these, these laws, you know, may seem kind of innocuous because you might be thinking, I live in an urban area or I have a post office right down the block. It's really easy for me, right? The people that are being disenfranchised by these laws are uh, the disabled who need help filling out their ballots, people in very rural areas that do not have access to in-person polling locations and who are going to be reliant on an increasingly stressed U.S. Postal Service to deliver their ballot on time. Um, we have several of our plaintiffs in Nevada are members of Native American tribes. Uh, they live on very remote reservations that have very sporadic mail service. Um, and their tribe would very much like to uh, set up a, a ballot drive where they could take the ballots of their members and drive them the two hours to Elko City, uh, the more than 100 miles, to ensure that they arrived on time and were counted. 
Oh, but they're not allowed to do that because they're not family members? That's exactly right. And the problem under the law is that different communities, different ethnicities, different cultures treat what a quote-unquote family member is differently. Yeah. And if you interpret it incorrectly, it is a felony under Nevada law to return someone's ballot if you're not a family member. Now tell me, is my aunt a family member? Is my grandmother? Is my granddaughter? Is the member of my Native American tribe? Nevada law doesn't tell you an answer to that question, and that's why we're suing. That's interesting. So, like, you, like you're, you talked about that your law firm is, like, a democratic entity, and, like, you work with democratic clients. Um, is there, like, like, the same as you, but, like, on the Republican side? Yeah, I need to just correct. We are not a democratic entity. We are a private law firm that has, as its clients, democratic organizations. Okay. Um, my firm is exceeding, it's, it's more than 1,200 lawyers around the world, and uh, not all 1,200 do this kind of work. It's actually sort of a niche area that one practice group does called the political law group. Um, there is opposition. Uh, the Republicans have announced publicly back in May that they plan to invest more than $20 million in a litigation strategy. Uh, and since that announcement, we've seen them intervening in our cases around the country, uh, trying to mess with our litigation strategy. But to be fair, we are also intervening in their cases and winning. Um, I was a part of a litigation team that intervened in a Republican lawsuit in California uh, that was brought by the Republican National Committee and a second lawsuit that was brought by a right-leaning uh, organization called Judicial Watch on behalf of Daryl Issa, who's a former member of Congress. Um, we intervened successfully in that case, and um, the case was ultimately dismissed for a variety of reasons. Uh, but we are seeing a battle Republicans versus Democrats all across the country in almost every case that we're litigating of any importance. Are both, like, so you talked, like, your, um, your plaintiffs in the Nevada case, like, you're trying to, like, get them the right to vote more easily without, like, committing a felony by not knowing who their family members are. But, like, are the Republicans trying to do the same thing? Are they also trying to get more people to be able to vote, but, like, those people happen to be, to be Republicans? Or are they trying to suppress the vote of Democratic voters? Tell me how that works. That's a really interesting and very complicated question. Um, it's hard for me to always fully identify and understand what the Republican strategy is against us. Um, that isn't to say there isn't one. It's just that sometimes it's not as unified um, as you'd expect it to be. So um, the Republicans are doing everything that they can to throw shade upon voting by mail. And they're doing it in and out of courtrooms. Um, there was an article this morning that I read that there's uh, more than $100 million being invested in the um, under the campaign to undermine vote by mail. Oh. Uh, and some of that's litigation, and some of that's education, and some of that's ads. Um, but we are going to see a massive campaign on the other side to discredit vote by mail. Now, you asked me about their strategy. That's a really interesting interesting question because you know who really likes to vote by mail? Older people, because it's safer. And particularly in a pandemic, if you are trying to socially distance, you're going to want a, an opportunity to vote that is not in person. Um, and so the safest way for the vast majority of uh, people to vote is to vote by mail. And so the Republicans doing this is a little bit confusing because I'm speaking in broad generalities here, of course, but older voters tend to skew more conservative. So in some ways, 
I'm not trying to make anyone feel better by this. We shouldn't let our foot off the gas. Um, but their strategy doesn't always make perfect sense is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, that's always been my reaction as like I've seen this unfold because I've always thought of voter suppression as like specifically targeted to like minority areas and like college students. So like Democrats trying to get more people to vote, Republicans trying to suppress the vote. But now when it like involves older, older voters, it seems like Republicans are just like, fuck it, let's just suppress the vote some more because it's worked for us in the past. But who knows? Um, <laughs> can you tell? Well, I just I want to say I just I just want to finish up and react to what you just said there. Um, you know, the Republican lawyers are quite good and very smart, and I don't want to imply that they don't have a legal strategy because they certainly do. Um, and that strategy, by and large, is to frame all of their activities as prevention of voter fraud. Now, voter fraud is this boogeyman that they point to, but for which there's very little evidence that it exists. Uh, and what I think is interesting litigating these cases is, you know, you can cry voter fraud all you want, but in a court of law, you have to prove your case with admissible evidence. And what we have seen so far is there is very little, if any, admissible evidence about the existence of voter fraud, both with respect to vote by mail and just more generally. Yeah. Do you think that all of this will have an effect on the outcome of the election? Unfortunately, I do, yes. Um, you know, I, I keep drawing it back to Nevada just because I'm living and breathing this case right now. <laughs> it's the, what I'm sort of most fluent in speaking about. Um, but in the primary election, uh, which was, again, you know, 90%, 98% of Nevadans were returning their ballots by mail, many of them for the first time, we saw more than 12,000 Nevadans' signatures not matched and their votes ultimately were thrown into question. Now, under Nevada law, there's a cure period which you can correct your deficiency, in, and 45% of those 12,000 voters cured their ballot, but that means 55% didn't. Almost 7,000 voters did not get to vote, even though they had cast their ballot because of this signature mismatch laws, because some county official had made the arbitrary decision that their signature didn't match the one on file. Um, you know, my husband is a uh, political director at the Human Rights Campaign, and if I asked him what the what 7,000 votes mean in Nevada, he would tell me a heck of a lot, right? That could be outcome determinative, especially in down-ballot races that are often decided by the smallest margin. Yeah. yeah. It, it's, I just want your listeners to remember that there is much more than the presidential election on the ballot in November. We have Senate races. We have congressional races. We have state and local government races that are all just important. We have judicial races that are all just as important. Um, and need to have their attention too. Yeah, that's a great point. I feel like when we talk about these numbers, it seems so small in terms of like Trump versus Biden. But once they're like boiled down to specific districts where like, and especially like city council races where people win by like 10, 12 votes, it seems 7,000 seems like huge. Um, so in Nevada, particularly, like, are you seeing, like, are you seeing that like, I know your plaintiffs are like, a millennial and like a Native American tribe, do you think that those are the people who are like generally being most affected by this? Or are those just plaintiffs that support the cause? Let, let me, let me rephrase that. Let me rephrase that. Let me rephrase that. Um, it's, not, it's not so much about like your plaintiffs. Like who are the groups that like, you talked about older people, who are the groups being most affected by like the crackdown, I guess you can call it, on the validity of mail-in voting? Is it everyone generally, or is it specific demographics? 
Well, you know, I think there's an interesting answer to that question with respect to Nevada, which is you have to remember that Nevada is a giant geographic state that has really two large population centers in Las Vegas and Reno. So Clark County, which is where Las Vegas is, and Washoe County, where Reno is, constitute 87% of Nevada's population. So the remaining 13% are spread across the other 15 counties. And some of those counties have very, very few voters, and they're spread out very distantly geographically. So those voters' ability to vote in person is severely hampered, and they're going to have to rely in many cases on um, vote by mail. Now, it's very much up in the air whether or not the Nevada legislature changes uh, the Secretary of State's plans for what's going to happen in November. So it's all very much up in the air whether they're going to do vote by mail, if they're going to do in person. Um, but the fact of the matter is, uh, regardless of what format this takes, we are still going to be living in a pandemic in November. And so people that traditionally are going to be relying upon vote by mail, rural populations, older populations, Native American populations, disabled populations, um, they are all going to be disproportionately impacted and unduly burdened by these types of laws. Yeah. Um, so the final thing I want to ask you about is in what way have judicial decisions about voter suppression changed or stayed the same over the recent, the past few years? Like, is there like a trend that we can expect, like will take place in the future? So like you sort of know what to expect in the future or not really? You know, uh, your last guest I listened to was a professor of law and he was probably much more, uh, had much more of the expertise to answer that question than you uh, than I do, but I will I will take a stab at it and I will say that uh, the Trump administration and Senate Republicans have dramatically reshaped the federal judiciary by appointing some very conservative judges, not just to the U.S. Supreme Court and the federal courts of appeal, but also to the district courts where we're litigating right now. And we have seen a real trend in conservative decisions um, that are not favorable to voting rights. Now, yesterday we had some pretty significant wins in both Minnesota and Texas and a sort of mixed decision in Kansas. So we are winning places. I don't want to make it sound like we're getting our butt kicked left and right. Uh, but it is a very hard fought battle. And, you know, you hope that the judge to whom you are presenting your arguments is going to be as impartial as possible and take the arguments and the evidence and weigh them fairly. Um, I'm not trying to suggest that judges from Republican uh, appointees don't do that, um, but that's what you're hoping for. And it's really outcome determinative uh, whether or not a judge is willing to do that, put his or her political beliefs aside, and fairly evaluate the evidence. Because, now I'm partial, of course, because I'm doing this for a living, but I think we have the much better cases. Uh, we have very fulsome evidence that we can point to that is admissible into court about how these laws are disenfranchising voters and how important it is that ahead of this historic election, we see some of the reforms that we're litigating for. Yeah. Um, thank you so much. That was awesome. Thank you so much, Henry. That was awesome and super informative. Um, thank you guys all for listening. Hope you learned something or multiple somethings. Uh, come back next week for our sixth episode where we will talk about the way that slavery and the reasons for the Civil War are taught in schools and the discrepancies in that. It's going to be super interesting.
Also, have a great day. Have a great week. Go like us on Spotify, Apple Music, wherever you get your podcasts. Follow. And follow us on Instagram at We've Got Next Pod. And have a great day.